Welcome to Inside Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting, a global strategy consultancy that helps business leaders seize competitive advantage and amplify growth. Inside Exchange is our forum dedicated to the free, open, and unbiased exchange of the insights and ideas that are driving business into the future. We exchange insights with the brightest minds of the day, the most daring innovators, and the doers who are right now rebuilding the world around us. Psychedelics are set to become the next major innovation in mental health care. Despite the large flow of investment into this area, the development of psychedelic drugs is not without its hurdles. In this episode, we'll get an introduction to the challenges surrounding the development of psychedelic drugs for mental health, including clinical trial design, manufacture, and commercialization. Hi, I'm Adrienne Rivlin, a former medical scientist and partner in LEK's Global Healthcare and Life Sciences Strategy Practice. Today, I am joined by Andre Valente, a partner in LEK's Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice and leading specialist in the pharma outsourcing sector. Together, we plan to discuss the development of psychedelic drugs for mental health. We are also joined by Tom McDonald from Clerkenwell Health, a specialty psychedelics contract research organization. Thank you very much for joining us, Tom and Andre. Gentlemen. Thank you, Adrian. Really great to be here. My name is Andre. I'm one of the partners uh, in the healthcare team. And uh, I focus a lot of my time on helping contract pharma businesses grow and investors deploy capital in this space as well. I'm really looking forward to, to the conversation today. I think it's, it's really exciting to see uh, the development of a new area of, of farm outsourcing specialization. Really interesting. Great stuff. And thank you very much for having me. I'm Tom McDonald. I've got a background in traditional pharmaceuticals. So I did about 10 years. Uh, the tail end of that time I spent at iCubia, which is one of the world's biggest uh, CROs and, and data providers to the pharma sector. But about two years ago, I launched Clark and Well Health with a couple of my co-founders. Um, we'd really been looking at the psychedelic sector as a whole and really came at this with the vision of, of wanting to try and transform mental health care, which I, I do genuinely believe psychedelics have an opportunity to do. And the way we think that that is going to happen is through creating high quality data that's going to bring not only the medical community, but also the regulators on side with these treatments. So that was where the idea of Clerkenwell Health was born. As I say, we've been up and running now for two years and, and we really provide specialist services uh, helping our clients design their clinical trials, get them approved by regulators, and ultimately deliver them as well. And that will be through partner sites, as well as we're building what I call kind of a spine of Clark on my own clinics. That's great, Tom. Thank you. Um, maybe to, to get us started, Adrian could um, tell us a bit more about the potential of the use of psychedelics in, in the treatment of, of mental health conditions. That would be a good way to start the conversation. It's an area I'm I'm really passionate about. You know, I think for so long we focused on the physical health side of things. And it's, I guess, become, you know, really apparent, especially through the pandemic, how important our collective mental health care is. I think there's about 900 million or even a billion people around the world who are currently suffering from mental health disorders and substance use disorders. And for many of those, the current standard of care or the current treatments that are available just simply don't work at all or work uh, in a very substandard uh, way. And I think what's been really exciting as we've seen the field of psychedelics emerge has been some of the early readouts from some of the early clinical trials and indeed some of the basic research that's being conducted in some of the leading academic institutions where we've really been able to see that there are some effect sizes um, 
that are, you know, unparalleled, frankly, in, um, you know, in traditional CNS or psychiatric research. And so the promise of psychedelics, um, and we mustn't hype it up too much, but the promise of psychedelics is really that they can offer an alternative and hopefully better treatment uh, for people who are suffering from mental health disorders. Particularly, we've seen um, exciting results come through on psilocybin. So those are magic mushrooms to the rest of us. Psilocybin for depression, for uh, major depressive disorder and also treatment resistant depression. And then the other one that perhaps I'd, I'd just call out right now is uh, MDMA uh, or ecstasy uh, for the treatment um, of PTSD. And this is a really exciting one because actually this uh, this therapy got breakthrough designation in the U.S., um, so hopefully, um, you know, we might be seeing some of these actually come to market in the next few years. Um, we think that it's going to disrupt a market that's worth in excess today of about 25 billion. So as well as uh, holding promise for patients um, and sufferers of mental health disorders, we also think that from a commercial perspective, it's going to herald um, some exciting times for the manufacturing industry and from its um and from its supporting industries um like the like the kind that um that tom is uh, representing today i couldn't agree more adrienne and i think yeah to add a, a little bit of color as well so that mdma study that that you've referenced there i think in their phase three out of the us they were looking at about two-thirds of patients after this course of uh, mdma sessions alongside talking therapy um, they were looking at about two thirds of patients were essentially in remission at 12 months, which, you know, as you say, is really quite a dramatic Unheard improvement. Of. Yeah. yeah, indeed. So it's a um, really exciting field and, and all manner of different conditions are being looked at, you know, right from what you think of as traditional mental health conditions, so depression, anxiety, PTSD. But we're also starting to see some interesting results coming out of things like traumatic brain injury and people even starting to move into uh, other CNS conditions such as Alzheimer's, dementia, and so on. So, yeah, an exciting place to be. And eating disorders as, as well, right, Tom? Absolutely, yeah. I think eating disorders is looking really interesting, and, and as are a number of addictions as well. So it, there's, there is a lot of work to be d done. As you say, it's, it's pretty early days, but some of the early indications are, are really quite exciting. Very interesting. Uh, and Tom, what kind of what kind of challenges are you are you seeing in terms of getting these these drugs to market? You know, flowing through uh, the clinical development process and then and then into into commercialization. What what sort of are the challenges you see these days? Yeah, well, fortunately for us as Clarkenwell Health, we do think that there are a number of unique challenges here um, with these compounds. I mean, the, the the first and most pressing issue in the vast majority of countries is the fact that they're still deemed as Schedule One. Yeah. i.e. not having any medicinal value and, and potentially having um, risky effect, side effects. Um, that's obviously something that is, is likely to change over time. But because of that scheduling, um, you're only actually allowed to administer them in, in places that have, have the required licenses. Um, and that's a fairly limited number of sites. So in the UK, you could probably count that on, on two hands. And, and that's a pattern that we're seeing reflected internationally. So that's something that you know, I, I touched on in my introduction that we're looking to set up our own facilities that are really designed um, to encourage uh, a great experience for mental health patients, uh, but also having the required licenses and, and skills uh, in place to treat these uh, participants as well. Um, the other thing which I think Adrian touched on is that there's been fairly limited uh, work in terms of new developments in the mental health space for, for a very long time. So 
there's a fairly small talent pool um, available to actually design these trials in the effective way and, and manage and monitor them. So that's something else that we're really bringing in-house at, at Clerkenwell at the moment. The other big one, I suppose, is, is probably the fact that this isn't a standalone treatment, or, or typically it's not seen as a standalone treatment. You've, you've usually got therapy that goes alongside it. Uh, and with that comes a, a number of issues, you know, from a clinical trials perspective, what's doing the work? Is it the drug? Is it the therapy? Is it the combination? And so trying to make sure that you're designing your studies and making sure that sites are delivering them in a consistent way is is another major, major challenge. And Tom, as you think about each of those, so maybe starting with the scheduling of the drugs, which, you know, I suppose we'll all have our own personal views on, you know, do you see any significant changes in the landscape from a regulatory perspective in terms of the way that governments around the world are currently thinking about relaxing perhaps the scheduling of these drugs i know in the us there have been some noticeable uh, notable excuse me um changes to the way that drugs some drugs are being thought of for research purposes yeah absolutely the us is is such an interesting example because you know they're state by state they're they're able to do you know <laughs> to an extent what they desire so oregon uh, as of next year will will have decriminalized and, and created a legal framework for the delivery of a whole range of psychedelic-assisted therapies, and we're likely to see a number of other states sort of following suit. But at that federal level, um, I would expect that we're, we're probably a couple of years away from you know a full rescheduling of most of these compounds. Um, and I think the same really is, is likely to be true in, in most other markets as well, at least for a few years. There's, there's definitely a softening of opinion. Uh, when we go in to speak to the likes of the MHRA or, or the FDA, their opinion has changed dramatically over the last couple of years, and, and they really get the potential of these treatments now. So I think, in short, I think for a couple of years, we're unlikely to see rescheduling, but we're definitely seeing an opening up and um, a better understanding of, of these treatments and how they uh, may, may impact uh, a broad range of patients. Thanks. I think it's also quite interesting that looking at this from the outsourcing partner perspective, uh, because it's, it's a relatively new field uh, in, in the way that we're describing it, um, th- this is creating opportunities for CROs like l- like um, like yours to differentiate and really build expertise in this therapeutic area and and really be ahead of of larger much larger competitors. So it's a pretty interesting uh, business dynamic as well and competitive dynamic for for you. Uh, which on top of the therapeutic area, we also have the the ability to serve smaller customers, which which uh, is is something very differentiated we see in the market. We see this across all of our experience in this in this space. Absolutely, yeah. I think probably the the largest players in the psychedelic sector in terms of drug developers have a market cap of about half a billion. So as you say, much much smaller scale than than traditional pharma. And yeah, we we quite consciously in the early days were working with some of the the smallest players in the space because they they were looking to us for a lot of um, strategic guidance and support on the design of their studies not just the, the actual management of them and i think over time um we're, we're we're certainly expecting to see some of the bigger players start moving in um but but right now it is it is quite a niche industry and they, they do need um some of the additional and, and slightly more tailored support that kind of a, a smaller operator like ours can hopefully provide and i think that relates quite well to one of your other points tom about the ability to recruit people into your organization with those kind of specialist skills and capabilities. Has that been a problem that you um, at Clerkenwell have had to overcome? And, and if so, how are you thinking about it going forwards? 
Yeah, it's it's been really interesting on the recruitment side of things. When I think about my own journey into the the sector, I remember sort of just telling friends and family, you know, I'm I'm leaving the big corporates and I'm going to set up a, a psychedelic startup, which yeah, it, it sort of definitely led to some raised eyebrows. And I think there is still an element of you know stigma around these compounds and, and treatments, but it's fading fast. So with our recruitment. We've we've been quite lucky in that there's there's been a lot of positive press recently, um, and so it does seem to be attracting uh, a lot more people than maybe it was a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, certainly as as we're looking to really scale this up as a, as an industry as a whole, um, I think that's going to be absolutely vital. How do we break down stigma? And I think the answer to that is creating quality data and, and making sure that that data is being communicated effectively, and you're you're being really truthful about some of the you know, riskier areas of the, the sector as well. And I think I, I mentioned two particular types of therapy, so um, psilocybin or mush- magic mushrooms and, and MDMA. But from your perspective, Tom, as you look at it from the CRO side of things, what compounds or particular companies do you think are showing the most promise in terms of their ability, I suppose, to actually bring one of these to market within a time frame that is, uh, I don't know, let's say two to three to four years? Yeah, I think um, you were right to, to mention psilocybin and MDMA first because they very much are uh, at the front of this. So MAPS um, is, is the group that's working with MDMA for PTSD. Uh, I think we're probably a couple of years away from that actually hitting the market. And then you've got Compass Pathways is probably the, the second most advanced organization moving into their phase three uh, beginning of next year. Um and that's with psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. So I would say those two companies are the front runners at the moment. Um, and then there's, you know, another large draft of companies looking at what I call kind of first generation psychedelics, which are the likes of MDMA, psilocybin, LSD, etc. But what's quite exciting now is that we're, we're starting to see some really exciting chemistry come through in terms of the designing of, of brand new chemical entities um, that they're either looking to enhance the efficacy, maybe shorten the, the duration of effect or improve on some of the safety profiles. And, and I think that's going to create a whole new raft of, of fascinating companies that are, are going to get really, really tailored in terms of the specific conditions or even sub patient populations that they're targeting. And Andre, I guess from your perspective, as you look at it from the pharma outsourcing space, you mentioned that types of organization like the one that, that Tom has founded here um, fits quite well with this kind of niche um, niche approach because of their ability to, you know, really show expertise in a particular therapy area or in a particular geography. From your perspective, as this industry starts to scale, what would be some of the key things that the CRO community ought to be thinking about? Yeah, very interesting. I think some of the key drivers of growth that we've seen other CROs take are are sort of maintaining this strong therapeutic area expertise and really being able to support customers, but also at the same time, expand the, the, the service offering. So uh, uh, really broadening the type of support you can provide to your customers as they scale, as they move through the clinic into later stages as well, perhaps helping them think through what their regulatory uh, uh, submissions is going to look like. So help them help them with some reg, reg affairs or even uh, uh, thinking about the range of options that are available for commercialization all of these uh, um, services are required by the by the same customers that Tom is serving today, and I think that's 
a normal path of development for CROs, this expansion of, of the service of the service offerings. I think that that could be quite exciting here as these pharma companies move through the development process and their needs evolve. I think it's it's a it's a really great opportunity to to expand the, the remit of the of CRO organizations. Absolutely. And I think to your commercialization point, I think that's a, a really fascinating one with these compounds. Um, as, as we touched on, it's, it's not just about giving somebody the dose and, and off they go, or indeed a, you know, a, a chronic treatment over a course of years with, with a pill that they take home and, and work on that way. There's, there's a lot more complexity to it with the therapy and so on tied in. So I think making sure that we're supporting our clients to design their trials in a way that's going to be you know, effective and, and commercially viable in the future is, is also mm. going to be a, a, a big selling point. And I think from, from our, our experience in a comparable area, CNS, central nervous system uh, uh, drugs, there is quite a lot of nuance in clinical trials for, the, for that therapeutic area where you have patients that are frail or unable to communicate, express well their, their, uh, the, how they're feeling and how the, the drugs is impacting them. Um, I think that's that's an area where this extra layer of support by by CROs is really really key, and you have to 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 make sure that the data that is submitted to the regulators is still as robust as it as it needs to be, but recognize that the patients are in very specific uh, situations. They have very specific conditions that uh, are not easy to diagnose and treat with with some of the more quantitative uh, means that we see you know, diagnostic imaging and lab work etc it's it's much more nuanced in these kind of areas i think that's a really good point andre because one of the things that has been most notable about the development of psychedelics is that you're not just developing the drug but you're actually developing a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy package as we call it so it's a combination of some form of talking therapy alongside the drug itself and I imagine, Tom, that that means that there are some specific challenges that are raised as you think about designing the trials from your your perspective. Absolutely, yeah. It brings it brings all manner of uh, additional complexity to these trials, and yeah, just before I dive in, maybe to set the scene of the sort of hundred or so psychedelic specialty drug developers out there, um, it's my take that you know ninety plus percent will have at least some form of talking therapy included in their treatment modality um and again just to sort of spell that out what that typically means is you know a a little bit of therapy between one and three sessions with the therapist and the participant that takes place prior to them actually taking a dose um you'll then have a single or maybe a couple of days of of the dosing where they'll need to be sit and guided through that you know pretty transformative experience but then vitally there's there's what's called integration therapy as well so how does that therapist really sit down with the participant or the patient and and really pull out what lessons they've actually landed on during the dosing or in the in the days and weeks that follow and there seems to be this really interesting golden period that psychedelics allow where you can kind of really jump in and and start shifting thought patterns ways of thinking negative or and and trying to push them more towards the positive um as well as kind of setting up good habits and and behaviors that that you can then take forward and that's actually going to create a lasting change rather than just a bit of an afterglow after the uh after the dose but anyway yeah in terms of the challenges that the the big one for me is around consistency 
So if you've got a, a multi-site trial with, let's say, 20 or 30 therapists on there, how do you really try and ensure that each of them is going to be delivering a consistent level and quality of therapy? Um, so for us, we've decided to set up our own therapist training program. That's run by an, an amazing uh, clinician, Dr. Sarah Beta. And so it starts right at the beginning. How do you recruit the very best in class therapists and um you know, people that are going to be amenable to change as well. You know, if you've got somebody, they could be the very best therapist in the world, but if they're not willing to adhere to this particular modality, that's, that's a big one. So that's one of our main things we look for is somebody who's going to learn and adapt. Um, then there's the, the training itself. You know, there's, there's some people that are doing this almost entirely remotely or through pre-recorded videos. We, <laughs> we don't think that's necessarily the way to do this. If you want the absolute best therapist, absolutely, it needs to be scalable. So you can have some modules online and so on. But we think some of that face-to-face element is, is really important. And, and the ability to fail people, frankly, as well. Not everybody is going to be right for this. And so, you know, not everybody who joins our, our training program, sadly, will, will make it through. But yeah, obviously, when they've done the training, the other big one, um, I think that is, is vital is making sure that you're monitoring um, these folks when they're actually out in practice, be that in trials over the next few years or when they're actually out in, in clinic. And maybe we'll have a little bit of time later to talk about uh, some of the technology and so on that, that we're thinking about in that particular space. But yeah, really exciting space, but making sure that there's consistency is is a big challenge. And what about the um, burden, if you like, on the patient themselves from participating in some of these, in these trials? I I imagine from what you've what you've talked us through there with the preparation sessions, the actual dosing session, and then the, the so-called integration sessions afterwards, that this is quite a significant burden on patients. Do you have quite high um, high rates of people falling out of treatment? Um, I imagine that they'd be quite expensive as well, right, to um, to run these trials. What about from the patient perspective, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're 100 right. It's <laughs> It, finding the right patients is is a challenge in, in men's health and, and CNS to start with, but then ensuring that they're remaining engaged and, and on board throughout the trial is, is obviously vital as well because it becomes very costly uh, if, if that starts all uh, falling away. So we've got a patient advisory board that we speak to on a regular basis with the early design of these studies. I think different people are looking at this in different ways, but I think wherever possible, if we can decentralise these studies, we absolutely should be so you know can some of the therapy be done remotely through a you know technology similar to zoom the answer is yes Uh, we've had a a study approved by the mhra uh based on that so a lot of the prep and some of the integration will take place remotely um and that's because you know this this particular population that we're talking about people at end of life quite clearly the last thing they're going to want to be doing is traipsing in and out of a a London clinic. So thinking about ways that we can really be designing these studies with genuine patient centricity is going to make all the difference. And then there's just basic stuff like, you know, treating people with common decency, making sure they know where they'd need to be, when they need to be, and using some tech to help nudge them along and make sure that they know where they need to be and what time and all of these kind of small bits and pieces that they seem minor, but if, if you're a, a participant and you're quite nervous about a particular treatment, um, I think it, it, it all adds up. And there's quite an active debate, isn't there, about your ability to provide consent, particularly when you're end of life or when you're suffering from a very severe mental health disorder. Have you found that participants are more or perhaps less willing to take part in these trials once you've taken them through the typical patient consent process? Yeah, I think 
there's there's certainly an element of scrutiny that that the participants have that maybe um, people outside of these these areas might might have, but. Really, no, I think we've been quite fortunate. Again, as I say, the, the press and, and the general sentiment towards these treatments has been fairly positive. So I think most people signing up for these trials are excited, A, that you know that there could be a potential cure. And typically, these are people that are, have struggled with treatments that are available on the market today. I wanted to also ask you, Tom, um, you mentioned earlier some of the digital innovations that you've been seeing in this space, and you referenced an approval by the MHRA for a, a Zoom-related element uh, to some of the therapy. As you think about the development of the sector, are there any other examples where you think digital health or some other kinds of innovative digital means or services might come into play? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got this sort of quite rare luxury within this subsection of, of the pharmaceutical sector in that it's it's brand new, you know, and, and we are all able to kind of help do our bit to, to build it from the ground up. Um, and so I think technology is absolutely going to play a really vital part in particularly some of the later stage trials and when uh, these products are getting commercialised and on the market. So um, one of the things that it's, it's a bit burdensome at the moment is the, the diagnosis side of things, which is very heavily questionnaire-based typically. Uh, but there's some amazing groups out there at the moment, um, Thymia to name one, who are doing some very clever stuff with you know apps where you, they're gamified, but essentially they're using facial recognition and or voice recognition or how frequently you're interacting with your social media to actually detect your, your levels of depression or anxiety. And I think the more and more that gets codified, I think that's going to be a huge advancement to the sector as a whole. Um, maybe even allowing you to actually try and intervene um, with a mental health patient before they start, you know, a, a really kind of heavy negative spiral, which is, you know, pretty commonplace across a lot of these. So diagnosis at, at one end. Um, a lot of companies are looking at, you know, what I call traditional patient support apps or, or platforms as well. So typically these are things to help the patient, you know, learn more about the trial, um, learn more about their condition, but also to augment the effects of the therapy. And that's something that we're, we're looking to do in partnership with another organization at the moment. So encouraging the participant to actually conduct some of the activities, mindfulness, et cetera, at home. Because obviously if you've only got two or three hours with your therapist prior to the dose, that's not a great deal. You're going to spend 90 plus percent of your time at home or at work. So encouraging people to, to pick that up at home is, is a big one. And the final thing that, that we're looking at, and I'm, I'm sure others will do um, fairly soon as well, is, is to go back to my point around um, ensuring the therapist's fidelity to the, the training that you've given them. And so we're developing a, an AI tool which will allow us to monitor in real time whether a therapist is adhering or not to the, the specific modality of therapy that they should be delivering, which is really quite an exciting space because, as I say, when you're, when you're on a trial, it's, it's relatively easy to keep an eye on. But when we're thinking, you know, we're going to have thousands of these therapists in the UK or further afield, that's when um, we're definitely going to need tech to support on that front. And, you know, I think for me, Tom, the other thing that I get quite excited about when I think about the potential for the digital side of things is really that it, I think, will help to democratize access and make access more equitable, potentially, if we, if we can get the model right. You know, if we don't require people to come in, as you've said, traipse into London or even be so London centric or even be so UK centric or even be so um, urban centric, right? So the ability to use these types of technologies 
for equitable purposes, I think is a, another kind of dimension that um, I would like to see um, exploited, if you like, with, with the use of these technologies. I expect, Andre, also from your perspective more broadly in the pharma outsourcing space, that, that CROs and and you know CMOs and CDMOs etc are all trying to find ways of using and harnessing the power of digital more generally i expect is that something that you're seeing as well yes absolutely i think uh most players in this space are are trying to make uh clinical trials more convenient for patients everybody recognizes the the, the as we said before the burden uh of participation for tri- for for patients coming into into the clinics and and uh, oftentimes this requires uh, long hours in, in traveling to get to the clinical sites, and, and it's absolutely a, a, a big trend in the space at the moment. Um, this decentralizing of, of clinical trial activity uh, is happening. We, we think, uh, I think personally, that this is not. Uh, we're not going to go to the extreme end where all trials are going to become virtual uh, in, in the near future. But the the deployment, the progressive deployment of technology to make patients' lives easier, to make uh, clinicians' lives easier, to make the CROs and the pharma companies' lives easier as as they progress through the clinical trial, absolutely seeing the deployment of those of those solutions. And what I find very very interesting as well is regulators are also pushing for the adoption of some of these some of these technologies. I think we're starting to see a greater acceptance that. That this is not just a convenience uh, um, play, but also there's also implications on the quality of data. I think Tom, as you're saying, the ability to guarantee the consistency of data is very important for for regulators. And digital enablement of clinical trials really helps with that consistency of data, quality of data that is you know essential for, to to demonstrate the efficacy and safety of the drugs uh, that we bring into market. And I suppose it, it would also impact. The physical location of where you could actually do the trial, as opposed to being particularly constrained to a particular physical space, right, Andre? Absolutely, it really broadens the types of patients, the the the, the countries of those patients that you can reach uh, with with these clinical trials, uh, and then onwards into into the clinical practice as well. It really is, as you said, democratizing the access to to treatment. And Tom, I guess, have you got um, aspirations to move beyond your London, central London clinic? What's what's on the horizon for Clerkenwell Health over the next couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So we've yeah we started started out working primarily with clients that were looking to to launch their studies here in the UK, um, but we've just started working uh, with a couple of North Americans, so starting to engage with uh, the FDA as well. So, yeah, the CRO services that, that we offer, particularly on the regulatory side of things at the moment, are international. Um, and next year, we're certainly looking to spin out a couple more clinics, uh, one into Europe and one over into North America as well. So really looking to start broadening the uh, the spread and the footprint of these sites so that we're able to really service our clients as they grow and move through phase one into twos and, and threes over time as well. So, yeah, that, that very much is part of the ambition. And I think we we also i see a lot of exciting stuff that's not just psychedelic i think that's an amazing entry point for us over the next couple of years but you know to go back to the digital uh, pieces that we've been touching on i think there's going to be all manner of <laughs> uh, crazy new technologies that are going to come through that are going to be really really impressive in the mental health cns space so we're going to stay very closely aligned around the therapeutic area um 
but looking at really interesting kind of frontier technology as well. Well, whilst we're being forward looking, Tom, I, I couldn't help but ask, you know, what are your predictions for the next five years as you think about the psychedelics industry more broadly? Um, I think the big one that, that we're starting to see a little bit of already is some consolidation. So I think there's been a few acquisitions this year of, of some of the smaller players who've created some really compelling data, but getting uh, bought out by some of the, the, the bigger folks out there. Um, linked to that as well, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that we'll see Big Pharma sort of moving away from kind of circling and keeping an eye on this uh, and really starting to jump in with two feet. So I think it was Otsuka were the first company uh, to actually sort of step into this with a, for them, a very modest uh, investment um, into, a, into a group called Mindset who we're working with out of Canada, looking at these kind of second and third generation compounds. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure we'll start seeing some more activity like that over the next few years. We'll, of course, have a few of those products that we've touched on already likely to hit the market. Um, so MDMA and, and psilocybin, I think probably in two to three years, they'll be there. I think there's probably a lot more infrastructure that needs to be worked on to, to make sure that that can be a reality. So the training of therapists, the launching of specialist clinics, all of these kind of bits and pieces that I think will help really accelerate uh, you know, and, and enhance kind of the, the launch roadmap for those particular compounds. And finally, probably uh, an increased focus on the second, third generation psychedelics. And Andre, from your perspective, if you were gazing in your crystal ball, what kind of uh, predictions would you be uh, you be sharing with us? I, I think it's a it's a fascinating time for for this industry more broadly. I think the uh, the strategic importance of the pharmaceutical industry has increased tremendously over the last two or three years through the through the COVID pandemic. I think regulators are now, as I said, much more flexible, much more adaptable to to what what they're hearing from pharma companies and uh, something that I'm very excited about I think patients are are now much more aware of the drug development process you know you hear people on the streets talking about drugs in phase two and phase three whereas you know five or six years ago you wouldn't have those kind of conversations and so I think it's pretty pretty interesting uh, time for patient advocacy of, of for 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 the development of new drugs and I think mental health is is in a is in a in a critical uh, place for that because it hasn't received uh, the attention it deserves over many, many years. And I think now the confluence of these factors could, could really um, make mental health uh, have a, a very good decade ahead, I think. I couldn't agree more. And I think for my part, because I'm ever the optimist, I think despite some of the challenges that Tom, you so articulately laid out today, around training of therapists, capacity, etc. I'm I'm hopeful that within the next five years we might see two or even three of these really important therapies coming to market and actually making an impact for patients who I think so desperately need them. My thanks to you, Tom, for joining us today. It's much appreciated. I know you're extremely busy. Um, maybe just one final question. If you are interested in getting involved in the trials that you guys are running, how would you go about getting in touch? Yes. So I think the best uh, starting point for people is is probably via our website, which is just uh, com. Uh, or following us on, on LinkedIn. And, and whenever we're uh, launching a new study, uh, that will get posted up there. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Andre. And thank you so much for, for having us on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us today at the Insight Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting. 
Links to resources mentioned in this podcast can be found in the show notes. Please subscribe or follow for future episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, we encourage you to submit your suggestions for future insights online at lek.com.